0: This morning, we will be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 20. It's a lengthy chapter, 42 verses. So we won't read the entirety of the chapter at the outset. Instead, we'll read a segment. And then as we go through it, we'll look at other segments of our text. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father, that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it! You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks... Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God, we ask that you would open up your word to us. That in it, we would see the Lord Jesus. That we would see our duty to you. How you have given to us how we should live. Live in accordance with your grace, in accordance with all that you have given to us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, how are we to live in this crazy world? The world around us seems almost surreal. There is a craziness about it. It doesn't make much sense very often. It can be very hostile. So how are we, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, supposed to live in a world that so often makes no sense? I think this morning in chapter 20, we have a picture of how believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are to live in a hostile, crazy world. It's a story of David and Jonathan, the best of friends. But within this story, there is an understanding of what brought them together. There is an understanding of how they treated each other. And at the core of this is covenant. A covenant that they had between themselves with God as witness, that shows us a model for how the Lord relates to us in a covenantal, committed relationship. And so I'd like us to see three things this morning in our text. First, that there is safety in the covenant. Second, that there is faithfulness in the covenant. And then finally, that there is peace from the covenant. Safety, faithfulness, and peace. All is a part of the covenant. Well, let's take a look here and first examine the safety aspect of the covenant for David and Jonathan. Now, it's not just our world that doesn't make sense. You can imagine what David is going through right now. The world doesn't make a lot of sense to David. First, there was this blessing that came to him completely out of the blue. As Samuel came to his home and anointed him king over Israel. This is not something that he was expecting. And then almost immediately, he faced a trial of his faith in the person of Goliath. When everyone else was afraid of Goliath and the Philistines, when no one else trusted the Lord to deliver, David did. And so, by faith in the Lord, he fought Goliath. He was then brought into the seat of power. He was in the palace with Saul. He married Saul's daughter. He became close friends with Saul's son. And he faithfully served the king for some time. But now, he's running for his life. Things have very much changed. There have been a lot of ups and downs This is a whirlwind of a life. And the problem that David has right now is that he has nowhere that he can be safe. Now put yourself for a moment in David's place. Not that you would be running from the king of Israel, but put yourself in the place of David if you felt you were not safe and you needed a place of safety. Where would you go? David can't go to work. ...because he works for Saul. And Saul is plotting his death. David can't go home... ...because he's married to Saul's daughter... ...and there's already been a plot... ...sprung at his home to kill him. He can't stay where he is... ...even with Samuel... ...because that's not a safe place. And so he's on the run again. And so David doesn't know what to do. There's no ready solution at hand. As a matter of fact... He doesn't even know what he has done wrong. We see that in verse 1. He says to Jonathan, what have I done? What what is my guilt? Tell me what it is. And then maybe some solution can be found. You see, the problem with David is not a lack of self-awareness. David doesn't think he's perfect. He's very aware of his own sin. He just has no idea what has caused Saul to hate him so much, what has caused his life to be turned upside down. Have you ever had a time like that? Maybe you weren't on the run for your life, but when you had a conflict or there was a problem or you were going through a difficult stretch in your life and you didn't even know what you had done wrong, you didn't know how to fix it. Because after all, that's what we like to do, isn't it? We like people to tell us what's wrong so that we can fix it. This isn't available to David. All he knows is that Saul is continually after him. But if he could perhaps discover the problem, then maybe he can address it. Maybe he can find a way to speak to Saul. Maybe he could make sense out of all this irrational behavior. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's often the way the world looks to us. There's hostility from the world and we don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem to be in the self-interest of the people who are hostile to us. It doesn't seem like we've done anything wrong. Where do we go from there? I think this is related to our inner sense of justice. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean all of us at times have this sense of justice in our lives. And it runs something like this. If we work hard and if we do good things, it will go well with us. It's almost as if we have kind of an implicit bargain with God. We're going to work hard and we're going to do good things. That's our side of the bargain. God's side of the bargain is to make sure that life goes smoothly. That's justice. The problem with that is we tend to then focus more on ourselves and our actions and less on God. And we have an expectation that God has to come through on his side and keep his part of the deal. And if he doesn't, then we get angry. So what do we do in this place if this is not an option for us? What can David do in this irrational, dangerous place? What David does is he goes to the only place he can turn to. David turns to someone that we would not expect he would turn to. He actually flees from... ...from Samuel, who we would think is the most powerful, godly man in Israel. And he goes to Jonathan. Now, we might have expected him to stay with Samuel, hoping to find protection. And we certainly would not think that he would go to Saul's son of all people. We know that Saul has already tried to bring Jonathan into the conspiracy to kill David... And humanly speaking, Jonathan has an awful lot to lose from David. He's the crown prince. If David becomes the king, he loses the throne. David goes to Jonathan, and Jonathan isn't even convinced that David's in real danger. Now, why would this be the case? Well, you see, you and I have an advantage over Jonathan. We have God's perspective. Jonathan's perspective on this stops at about verse 7 of chapter 19. We've seen everything else in chapter 19. We've seen the plot to kill David. We've seen the conspiracy. We've seen the hatred of Saul. Jonathan has seen none of this. As far as he's concerned, he's talked his father out of killing David. As far as he knows, Saul has promised not to kill him. And... I think it makes sense that Jonathan wants to think the best of his father. And he hasn't quite come to grips with the reality of the situation. He does not see how harsh the world is, how irrational the world is. So why then does David come to inform Jonathan? I think it's because David has come because of the covenant he has with Jonathan. Now, David and Jonathan had made a covenant. You remember this happened in chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. They made a covenant, and this is an agreement, but it's so much more than an agreement. A covenant involves promises. It involves commitments. It goes beyond what we associate with an agreement or a contract, something that can be broken. After all, we're not surprised when someone breaks an agreement or a contract with us, when someone makes a business dealing for us and finds a better deal and they go back on their deal with us. We're not surprised by that. But a covenant is much deeper. This covenant is firm And unbreakable, because it rests upon promises and commitments. And we see that David is appealing to this in what he asks for from Jonathan. It's kind of hidden in the English. Look with me at verse 8. David says to Jonathan, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Now when we hear that, we hear David saying to Jonathan, be nice to me. Treat me well. Right? Deal kindly with me. But what is actually behind this English translation, which is a fine translation, but I think we need to understand more of the aspect of what is being said here. What is behind this translation is the Hebrew word hesed. You see it over and over again in the Bible, almost 200 times. And what it means is love, compassion, affection. But it also means loyalty, dependability, faithfulness. It actually means both of these things at the same time. It means a faithful love. Often it's translated in the Old Testament, steadfast love the steadfast love of the Lord. It is a love that is grounded and rooted in loyalty and faithfulness. You see, David turns to Jonathan in a world that has gone crazy because he knows that is the one place that he can find safety and commitment. He knows that Jonathan is committed to him with a love that is faithful and dependable. Right now, David's not sure which way is up. He doesn't know where to turn, but he knows one thing for certain. He has a place of refuge with Jonathan because of the covenant. Now, let me ask you this question. Does the world sometimes seem out of control to you? Does it seem like you don't want to stand up too fast because you might faint? Because... You have financial difficulties or health difficulties or hostility from others or problems in your family or difficulties in your marriage or attacks on your job. What do you do in a situation like that? Where do you go when you have no place to turn? When your expectations haven't been met, when you don't know which way is up? The same principle applies to you that applies to David. You go to the place of Hesed, the place of grace, the place of steadfast love, faithful love. Where is that place? That place is found with Jesus. You see, Jesus is the one who has made covenant with all those who believe in him. He has cut that covenant in His blood. He is committed to His people. He is committed to you if you trust Him by faith. He is the only place to turn, no matter what. He is faithful. His love is everlasting and will never be denied. When everything else is chaos, when the world doesn't make sense, the only place to turn Is Jesus. Well, the story goes on then to advise us and teach us more about the covenant. David and Jonathan go out into the field and Jonathan said to David in verse 12, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. and Do not cut off your steadfast love from the house, from my house, forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So how will Jonathan respond to this request for safety from David? David comes up with a plan for Jonathan to execute. And... Stop for a minute to think about this situation. What would you advise in this situation? Or better yet, what do you think the world around you would advise Jonathan to do? David is asking Jonathan to act against his father. Now, you know the saying, blood is thicker than water. Any of you that has a family with brothers in it have experienced this firsthand. You know how brothers are. I suppose sisters as well. You know how they poke at each other? You know how they make fun of each other? They kind of terrorize each other a bit. Until what? Until someone from the outside comes and attacks one of the siblings. Right? Then it's all ranks are closed. Then it's us against the world. There's a kind of unity that comes in family. And David is asking Jonathan to go against this. He's also asking Jonathan to go against his self-interest. He's asking Jonathan to facilitate David eventually coming to the throne. What will happen to Jonathan when Saul loses the throne? Jonathan loses the throne also, doesn't he? Now, every advisor in the world would come up to Jonathan and give him what advice? You need to think of yourself. If you don't take care of yourself, who will? And this is clearly the way our society is headed, isn't it? At work, we're advised to be ruthless and to undermine other people who are working with us, so we can get ahead. In schools, there is now a full-blown culture of cheating on exams and tests. Not caring for the integrity of the knowledge or the integrity of those who studied, but rather just trying to selfishly get ahead. If people get in your way, what are you told to do? Push them to the side. Perhaps we see this nowhere more clearly and horribly than in the plague of abortion in our world today. If a child gets in your way, the way of your career, the way of your relationship, the way of your vacation, well, then just take care of the child. Just get rid of it. I've got to think about me. I've got to think about my needs. You see, that's the world that we live in. It's a world of selfishness. It would be normal if Jonathan tried to get rid of David. Actually, this is what makes Saul so angry later in the chapter. In verse 31, he says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Saul understands the way of the world, and he understands that Jonathan is being foolish in accordance with the way of the world. How could Jonathan fail to see what is so obvious? So where's the answer? What does Jonathan see that the world does not? Again, we have the same answer that we had before. The covenant. That's why Jonathan opens with this in verse 12. He says, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. He reminds David that they have a covenant between them and the Lord is witness to that covenant neither of them can forget it or go back on it because God himself is a witness. The covenant with David is behind Jonathan's response. It's not just that Jonathan must keep his promise to a fault. You see, covenant is more than that. There is a relationship that they have behind the promise. The covenant is a sign of the relationship Between them, we're told over and over again that the reason they made the covenant in the first place was because of their love one for another. So what Jonathan is doing is, he's looking at the world and the situation through covenant eyes. Through God's eyes. Jonathan is not seeking his own selfish kingdom like his father is doing. Jonathan is seeking God's kingdom first. In committing himself to David, he is working against all self-interest. He is actually handing over the kingdom to David. What he's doing doesn't make any sense. Unless we realize that the covenant... And love and the witness of the Lord are more real than what we call reality. More enduring than what is around us, what we can see and touch. It's almost as if Jonathan had had the opportunity to memorize and apply Matthew 6, 33. He didn't. But you do. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. That's how a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ lives. When the world advises selfishness, the follower of Jesus remembers that God's kingdom comes first because of the relationship, the covenantal bond that we have with Jesus. And so we put God's kingdom first. Who does this in the world? Who gives up what he has for the benefit of another? Once again here we have a picture in Jonathan of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus who came to earth giving up his glory, giving up his comfort. He came to earth and became a man and lived among sinful men. He lived a perfect life and died a shameful, atoning death so that we might benefit. You see, Jesus is bound by the covenant to us. When you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, when you confess, I can do no more, I have to rely entirely on Jesus, I surrender all to Jesus, then you are in covenantal bond with Jesus. And all that is His is yours. And this is what Jesus came to establish. He did not just come to free you from sin. He did not just come to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus came to bind you to himself and to God himself in a covenant relationship that you might dwell with them forever. You see, Jesus is faithful to the covenant. We have another example of this in David's response to Jonathan. This Passage is very interesting because Jonathan says this in verse 14. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, just a situation check here. Who's the one in danger? It's David, right? Why is Jonathan saying, show me love and do not kill me? It's because Jonathan is essentially asking, David, when you come into power, do not forget the covenant that we have and the love that we have. And he does it again using the language. When Jonathan says, do not cut off your steadfast love, that is the same Hebrew word, hesed. That David says when he speaks, deal kindly with me. You see, Jonathan is reminding David now of the covenant. And Jonathan is seeking the kingdom of God. He knows that God will establish David upon the throne. And do you know what the very first thing the world will tell David to do? To kill every single person in Saul's Family. That is standard operating procedure. That is what you do. You purge everyone from the prior dynasty. Common sense screams it. Politics demands it. The culture normalizes it. And yet, covenant trumps that. David would keep his promise. We see in verse 17, David swearing to Jonathan that the covenantal bond that keeps them together will keep him faithful to Jonathan and his family. We will see in weeks to come how David honors the family of Jonathan. He puts his son at his table for the love that he had for Jonathan and for the faithfulness that he has to the covenant. This is how Christians live out their lives. We live in light of the covenant love that God has shown to us. And we show this same faithful love to others around us. It's what marriage is founded upon, isn't it? You know the vow, for better and for worse. It's why we stand for the truth of God's word when the world mocks us to our own dismay. It's why we keep our word even when it hurts. Because we are seeking another kingdom by faith. We're not distracted by the world around us. Followers of Jesus understand they are bound to Jesus by a relationship of covenantal faithfulness. Hebrews puts it this way. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. So thirdly, we now proceed to the next point in the story. David and Jonathan have prepared this plan. What Jonathan will say at the new moon feast they're going to gauge Saul's reaction. And depending upon how Saul reacts, then they will meet again. Not exactly meeting, but there'll be a signed signal. And so now what we see here is Jonathan before his father in verse 25. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Now, It's wonderful how the Bible gives us insight. Do you wonder why we're given such a detailed account of who's sitting where? It's as if we're in the room, isn't it? You can almost, if you close your eyes and read that verse, you can almost picture the table and picture where Saul sits and Abner sits and Jonathan sits, right? Why so much detail? It's because something important is going to happen here. God wants us to see exactly what will happen. Will Jonathan be put in a tough spot? How will God deliver him? Now, if we don't already know the end of the story, we expect God to do something to deliver Jonathan so he doesn't have to betray his father or betray David. He's in an impossible situation. And when we think of passages like, God will never give you more than you can handle. We assume God has to come to the rescue here. There's only one problem with that. That verse is not in the Bible. It's a paraphrase of 1 Corinthians 10.13. But listen to the actual text. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Don't stop there. That you may be able to endure it. God will never give me more than I can handle. Sure sounds a lot easier. Doesn't it? What? There are situations that I'm going to be in and God's going to expect me to endure it? The world is going to be in turmoil around me. There's going to be chaos. There's going to be hostility. And God's not going to snatch me up and take me out of this situation and set me on a bed of lilies. I actually have to live a difficult life and endure sinners sinning against me. The servant is not greater than his master. Jesus was not swept out Of the world. He was not protected from the sins of others against him. As a matter of fact, he was murdered by the sins of others against him. We have to understand the end of that verse that God desires that we endure, that He will equip us to endure. He doesn't expect us to do it on our own, but He expects us, by His grace, to endure. He does not promise to magically resolve all of our problems, even real problems. But he does say he will provide a way of escape, a way for us to endure. And as this scene unfolds, we could just imagine Jonathan being in shock, seeing a turmoil, a disaster unfolding before him. He's come to this meal, you could imagine, if you were he. Hoping against hope that everything will be all right. I almost imagine in my sanctified imagination that when Saul asks, where is David? And Jonathan begins to speak, in his mind he's saying over and over again, oh, please let him say good. Oh, please let him say good. Just say good, Dad. Please just say good. Because then everything would be fine, right? But what happens Jonathan does his best to bring about a peace, but so it goes from bad to worse. Saul explodes with rage against Jonathan. And we see once again a familiar scene. The hair-triggered spear comes out after his own son. That's how gripped with irrationality and anger and madness Saul is. He attempts to kill his son. Now, Just a little bit earlier, he was saying, everything I'm doing against David is to preserve my son to be on the throne. And now, he tries to kill him. It doesn't make any sense. Because what it is, it's an attack on the covenant, on loyalty, and on love. See how Saul goes after Jonathan. And think about how you may have experienced these attacks. Or perhaps closer to the point, read your own heart and see whether you use these attacks against others to get your way. First, Saul tries to shame Jonathan. He tells him, You're not worthy to be my son. You are shameful. You've chosen David to your shame and mine and the shame of your mother. Now, this is common in our day, isn't it? We're constantly being told that the idea of sin, the idea of guilt is so outdated and we should not think about it anymore. And yet at the same time, the world uses shame to get its way all the time. It tells you how you should think, how you should act, how you should treat others. And if you don't do it the world's way, what happens? You get outed. You're not normal. You're not right. You're free to be attacked. Then Saul tries guilt with Jonathan. He calls him the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Now, This isn't meant to be a joke, but this is a really funny verse in the Bible. Saul is saying that Jonathan's mother is perverse and rebellious. And again, if we get our dictionary out and we look for the definition of perverse and rebellious, whose picture is there? It's Saul's. He is the definition of the perverse rebel and yet he's trying everything he can to beat down Jonathan, to get him to give up on his faithfulness, to give up on his love for David. Have you ever been guilted by someone? Have you ever been made to feel like you have to come in line, otherwise you're not a real important person? This is what Saul is using. Finally, he tries a masterstroke. In verse 31, he tries greed. He says, For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. He wants Jonathan to act in self-interest. Now, at this point, Saul is really foaming at the mouth. As as we're reading this text, you have to understand, most of what Saul is doing here is Bible cursing. It's not what you would see in a bar in Houston. But the intent is the same. You know, no one calls someone the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Right? I, at least, I've never heard that in my life. But I have heard many things that sound like it. You see, what's happening here is Saul has completely lost control and he's trying everything he can to break up the relationship between Jonathan and David. And all that binds Jonathan to David is not interest, it's not wealth, it's not even the prospect of success. All that binds them together is covenant against all these attacks. How do you think Jonathan will respond here? Jonathan is not some wet blanket, right? He's a strong man. He's a leader of men. He responds by rejecting his father's false ideas. He responds with his own anger, righteous anger, that he's been so wrong about his father and that he needs to leave. You see, what it's really about is not what we think we can achieve in the world's eyes. What it's really about is our commitment to others. Once again, I don't know that we can have a sermon without a wondrous, pithy quote from Dale Ralph Davis. Here's this week's. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. Stop and think about that for a moment. Think about what our families would be like if we lived like that was true all the time. Think about what the church of Jesus Christ would be like if we lived like that was true all the time. If the critical, important thing in our lives was keeping and fulfilling our promises. The relationships that bind us. The covenantal, steadfast love that binds us to each other and to God himself. How do we know that what Dale Davis says is true? We know because that's the essence of the covenant. The essence of the covenant is fulfilling your promises. And so Jonathan knows that God is in control. Jonathan knows that God is on the throne. Even if he's lost his father to madness even if he has lost his best friend forever. There's only one other brief occasion in which Jonathan and David will meet again. And what does Jonathan say to David in verse 42? Go in peace. Now that makes no sense to us, does it? How can there be peace? The world is in chaos. Family is in ruins. There can only be peace because the Lord has made peace between Jonathan And David, you and I face this same fact today. When the Bible tells us that we have peace, it does not mean that there is calm in the world. Jesus says, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome the world and its senselessness. Jesus has overcome the world and its selfishness. Jesus has overcome the world and its turmoil through the power of His covenantal love. The love that brought Him to the cross to purchase for Himself a people. The covenant reminds us that Jesus is our faithful, loving, Savior, let's pray.